the more I've realized that there's this interesting almost contrast that happened. Two, two things that almost seem to be opposed to each other, but they both take place. And, and we actually all experience this. When we become a Christian, we, we all of a sudden realize that we are forgiven. All our sins have been washed away, past, present, and future. We have been made righteous. We have been made holy. We are justified. We are adopted. We are saints, we are priests, we are future heirs of God's kingdom. And we've been imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet despite these things being 100% true, it doesn't take long to live the Christian life before we find ourselves in difficulties. Whether it be persecution or illness or suffering whether we be in times where we just feel like God is not present, that he's not growing us, that he's not changing us, that we feel like he doesn't even love us. And those times can be incredibly difficult. And so we have this odd thing happening where we can have all these blessings upon us and yet feel at times like we're having such a difficult time. And for some of us, that's a short period of time. For some of us, that's our whole life. We deal with things that don't seem to go away. But why does this happen? Is this how the Christian life is supposed to be? And is this suffering we face, whatever it may be, is it a sign of our lack of maturity as a Christian? Is it a sign of our lack of faith? Or is it something else? We're going to look at some of these things in 2 Corinthians tonight, but more generally, what, what is the true nature of the servant of Christ? What marks the life of the servant of Christ? And so if you have your Bibles, please open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. You're going to start reading at verse 12. But before we do that, I just want you to imagine a, a scenario for me. As we know, Shabu, our pastor, has recently been away in the US, supposedly studying, but most of the time just appearing on TV and trying to become famous. But let's just say that while he was away, some new people came into our church. And these new people began to start spread a rumor around that, that Shabu was not really who he said he was. Shabu was not really a man of God. And his message was not from God. You see, Shabu was preaching that you're saved by grace alone, apart from the law. Not only that, but they started to spread around that Shabu actually is weak. Sometimes he displays weakness. Sometimes his kids muck up. Sometimes he makes poor decisions. Not to mention that he's short and a Hawthorne supporter. <laughs> but all jokes aside, all jokes aside, this message begins to spread around the church. And soon, quite seriously, people are considering whether Shabu is really for this church. Does he have a heart for this church? Because after all, those things are true. He displays weakness from time to time. And soon there's division in the church, and people don't know what to do. And, and sure enough, soon Shabu hears about what's happening. And he's cut to the heart that his own congregation are so quickly abandoning him. He's so cut to the heart, in fact, he writes us a long email. And this is actually a very similar situation to 2 Corinthians. Paul planted this church. He spent a year and a half with these people and, and watched them grow in Christ. 
In fact, he felt like a father to these people. He, he often talks about in this letter how much he loves them, how much he cares for them, how he aches for them and prays for them constantly. And yet he went away, as Paul did, on other missionary journeys. He was actually visiting the Ephesus church. And soon these false apostles crept into the Corinthian church. Now whether they gave this name to themselves or, or someone gave it to them, they went under the title of super apostles. And they crept in and they were saying that Paul's message was a lie. But not only was Paul's message a lie, but Paul himself was not up to the task. And this was spreading around the church. And we see actually in chapter 10.10 some of the things that were going around. These are verses are talking about Paul here. Here's what they say. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. These were the kind of things the church were talking about, that Paul was weak. He displayed weakness. And so could he really be a true man of God if that was the case? And so distressed is Paul that he writes this letter to two, the Corinthians in order to defend himself, in order to say that this is what a true apostle looks like. This is what a true servant of God looks like. And so as we read through these verses now, I want you to keep this picture in mind and try hear Paul's appeal to these people. And so starting at verse 12, it'll be up on the screen as well. Here's what it says. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letters of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So can you see Paul's appeal here to these people to see the truth? And he, and he starts in verse 12 and 13 by just explaining some of his travel plans. And he actually began this in chapter 1, where he was talking about why he had not to come to visit the Corinthian church sooner. And it actually seems like this is one of the things that maybe these super apostles were criticizing about Paul. Because in chapter 1, 16, Paul says, <clears throat> Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Paul makes clear that his plans are by the will of God. He's not just wandering around aimlessly, even if that's what it seems like to some people. And so we see he came to this city of Troas, and, and there was this open door for him, this tremendous opportunity for the gospel to be preached. 
However, something was troubling Paul. His friend and fellow worker, Titus, was missing. Why did it concern him so much? We actually read later in chapter 7 that Titus had been spending time visiting the Corinthian church and was supposed to be coming to give Paul a report on how they were doing. And so you can see why it concerned him so much because not only was his friend missing, but he was missing because he had been to this church, which could mean that the church was in a worse state than Paul could have even imagined. And so concerned was Paul for his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that he left this open opportunity and he pressed on to Macedonia in hope that he would find Titus and hear about the Corinthian church. And, and just on the side, we'll come back to this point later, I think it's really amazing to see a glimpse of how Paul makes his decisions here. We see that he has such a love for them that he actually leaves aside this opportunity. And, and I just wonder sometimes whether ministry things can take the place of our own brothers and sisters in Christ, that there may be a need that we miss because we're too busy. And I think we'll come back to that point later. But moving on, looking down at verse 14, he keeps going. This verse here, 14, is probably the most important verse in this entire letter. In fact, after this verse, he basically just unpacks what he's saying in this verse throughout the rest of the letter. And so let's read through this verse, just, just verse 14. It's important to know that I'm reading from the ESV, and some of your versions, particularly in this verse, might say something different. So here's what it says. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read through that passage, I get these wonderful images that come to mind. A triumphal procession. How great does that sound? I I picture something in the city with lots of people and colours and noise and marching happily along in this procession. I think that's what we really want to see in this passage. But as I looked into this image more and more, that's actually not what's going on. There's actually something behind this that's more deep that Paul is referring to. In fact, if you actually look uh, at the next slide, I just wanted to quickly show you what some of the other versions say about this verse. So if you want to just click to the next one, Malcolm. So you'll see at the top one there, the NIV says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. And then some different ones up there say different things. Look at the NKJV. It says, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Those two are extremely different things. And so what's going on here? Well, it all has to do with what Paul's referring to when he's talking about this triumphal procession. And, you know, he's actually referring to a Roman triumphal procession here. You know, this was a common event back in uh, Paul's time. And there were hundreds of these events recorded uh, in literature from that time and all kinds of other places. And this procession would occur after a great victory that Rome had. And its purpose was to display their almighty power. They had defeated the enemy, and so they were going to parade and show everyone their power. This parade included many people, such as magistrates and, and um, 
trumpeteers and flute players, and, and it also included lots of smells. Incense would be always present. However, another important aspect of this was the commanding general who won the victory. He'd be at the very center of this march, and everyone would be praising him for his efforts to defeat the enemy army. But there's actually something else. Actually, in fact, the most important part and central aspect to this triumphal procession was marching in front of the commanding general in chains with the captives of the enemy army. The captives. And the captives, captives were walked and paraded for all to see. And at the end of this procession, oftentimes, so they were killed or sold into slavery. And so the question now becomes, who is Paul identifying himself with? Who does Paul, the Apostle of Christ, want us to see himself as? The one marching in victory? Or the one who is being captured and paraded? And actually, without getting technical, the way that this word is used here for triumphal procession can only refer to someone who is being led as a captive. And there's only one other place that's used in the whole Bible. I'll quickly show you. Colossians 2.15. It says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so the same word for triumphing here is the, the Roman triumphal procession that's being referred to in Corinthians. And the idea is that, that Christ has disarmed the rulers and authorities and is leading them in a triumphal procession to show their defeat. And it's the same thing in 2 Corinthians. And so contrary to what we actually want to think, this isn't some victory march where Paul's happily walking along. This is actually him marching as a captive. He's saying, on the road to Damascus, Christ defeated me. He overcame me. He showed me the truth and made me a servant of God. And now I'm being paraded for all to see so that the commanding general Christ may be glorified. Now I have to say that some people don't agree with this. Some people struggle with this imagery because I think it's quite confronting. It's not what we want to see. But I just want to read a few verses from the rest of 2 Corinthians. And I want you to see if you can reconcile this view to what Paul says about himself in 2 Corinthians. So each verse will be up here. I'm just going to quickly read a couple of these out. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 12 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for the sake of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies, in our mortal flesh. 2 Corinthians 4.16 So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 5, 3 to 4. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, even indeed by putting it on 
up. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. 2 Corinthians 6.4 But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labours, sleepless nights, hunger. And of course, in this book we also have chapter 11 and 12, which is this Paul explaining a massive list of all the struggles and sufferings he has as a servant of God. And one more from 1 Corinthians 4.9. Listen to what he says here. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. And this is what Paul's trying to get at, that he has been overcome and he is a spectacle for all to see for the glory of Christ, that through his suffering, through his weakness, through his hardship, Christ is seen and Christ is celebrated. And so that brings me to my first point. The true servant of Christ is one that suffers. Suffering and hardship is a certain and necessary part of our Christian life. And Paul knew it all too well. However, what we need to realize is that Paul did not see this suffering as something that disqualified him from ministry. He did not see it as something that a certain sign of his immaturity as a Christian or a sign of his lack of faith. In fact, Paul saw it as the very thing that made him a true disciple, a true servant of Christ. He says this is a characteristic of the servant of Christ. In fact, more than that, he sees it as the very means by which he can comfort and strengthen those who are around him. Listen to this from 2 Corinthians 1.6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And so I guess the question for us is, and one that I've been asking myself, is how do we view suffering? How do we see the difficulties that arise in our lives? Because I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I'm struggling or I feel like I'm in a space where God doesn't appear to be there, I often think that that must be a sign that I'm doing everything wrong. That 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 must be just me. And I need to work harder, and I need to change things. And of course, sometimes that might be true, but the fact that you are struggling is not a reflection of those things. And so... I don't know, it could be anything. Maybe for you it's the struggle of standing up for Christ in your university or your home within your own family or at school or in the workplace. Maybe it's the difficulty of raising kids and and all the struggles that brings. Or maybe even perhaps seeing your kids make difficult choices, ones that you don't agree with. Seeing them walk away from Christ. And you think, maybe that's because I'm not faithful enough to God. Maybe it's illness. Maybe it's a sickness that people see and it's difficult. Or maybe it's a sickness people don't see. Maybe you suffer with a mental illness like anxiety or depression and these things just hang around. And you think, is this ever going to get better? 
Why has God allowed this to happen if I'm his child? Perhaps it's something else. But we need to remember that these afflictions are not a reflection of our immaturity in Christ. They're not punishments given by God. Paul shows them to be the very characteristic of the Christian life. But even more than that, the tool that God uses not only to grow us, but to display his power. Listen, Paul talks about this exact thing in 2 Corinthians 12. Listen to these verses from Paul himself. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may, be, may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. Then I am strong. Paul saw the true purpose of his hardships. So let us take heart in our struggles And please don't hear me wrong. I'm not trying to make light of some of the things people might be going through here. I know they can be incredibly difficult times. But we need to remember that God will not only comfort us, but will use these things, and it actually opens an incredible opportunity for us to comfort others. Just to illustrate this, I want to tell you a true story. Some of you here may have heard of a preacher called Charles Spurgeon. He was known as the Prince of Preachers, uh, a very popular man uh, back in the 1900s. But what people don't realise about him, him is that he suffered with depression his whole life. And I just want to tell you how he viewed his suffering. Coming from his own words, this is what he had to say. And just remember, he's a pastor and a Christian at this time when he wrote this. Here's what he says. One Sabbath morning, I preached from the text, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And though I did not say so, I preached my own experience. I heard my own chains clank while I tried to preach to my fellow prisoners in the dark. But I could not tell, you, tell, I could not tell why I was brought into such an awful horror of darkness for which I condemn myself. On the following Monday morning, Monday evening, a man came to see me who bore all the marks of despair upon himself. His hair seemed to stand upright, and his eyes were ready to come out from their sockets. He said to me after a little while, I never before in my life heard any man speak who seemed to know my heart. Mine is a terrible case, but on Sunday morning you painted me to the life and preached as if you had been inside my soul. By God's grace, I saved that man from, from suicide and led him into gospel light and liberty. But I know I could not have done so if, it had not been, if I had not been myself confined in the dungeon which he lay. I tell you the story, brethren, because you sometimes may not understand your own experience, and the perfect people may condemn you for having it. But what know they of God's servants? You and I have to suffer much. For the sake of the people around us. 
You may be in Egyptian darkness and you may wonder why such a horror chills your marrow, but you may be altogether in the pursuit of your calling and be led of the Spirit to a position of sympathy with desponding minds. Our sufferings can be used greatly for the glory of God. And can I just say, if you're in a moment right now where you feel like God's not present, where you feel like he's forsaken you, you're actually in very good company. You know, David in the Bible, all throughout the Psalms, his times of his life where he just has no idea where God is. He thinks God's not there. He's a, he thinks God's abandoned him. Jeremiah once accused God of tricking him because he wasn't present. And Paul is in the same position. So take heart in these things. Because who knows, maybe like Paul, the thing you're struggling with may be the very thing that keeps you in a right and good relationship with God. And so this is Paul's first defense to these so-called super-apostles who are pointing out his weakness. He says, you've got it all wrong. These weaknesses are actually one of the things that makes me a true follower of Christ. Look how much Paul suffered for the sake of the gospel. But let's keep moving on, and I promise my next two points won't take that long. Um... We're looking back at verse 14. We'll keep reading. So I'll read the NIV version now, because I think that's better for verse 14. And then we'll keep reading through. It says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. And so Paul continues to build this great imagery of the triumphal procession. And he now actually even, it seems like he's referring to the incense that I was talking about that that wafted over all the crowds during this great procession. And he's saying, in the same way that these smells and these fragrances would have wafted out amongst the crowds, in the same way I will use you, in the same way Christ uses us, to spread the fragrance of himself to all people. And that brings me to my second point. The true servant of Christ suffers and yet is used for the proclamation of the gospel. And of course this follows on quite well because as I said, suffering is often used for our preaching the gospel. And you see, in this triumphal procession there was no hiding for these Captives. There was no ducking away to not be seen by those in the crowds. They were constantly on display. And whether we like it or not, as Christians, we are always on display. However, what kind of witness are we giving to the world around us? In our hardships, in our sufferings, in just our everyday lives, what kind of testimony are we giving about Christ. Paul understood that at every moment he was giving a testimony about Christ. Not only that though, and this is something I found so challenging, is that Paul had a very real view of humanity. 
There are only two types of people in this world to Paul. Those who are being saved and those who were perishing. And, and I have to ask myself, is this the mindset I have in everyday life? Because I feel like sometimes when I go to ministry opportunities... I get in this mindset of, oh, now I have to preach the gospel because I'm at this event and that's the time to preach the gospel. But then when I'm doing my everyday tasks, I forget. I just live life without actually seeing people that are either perishing or being saved. And Paul talks about this fragrance. In fact, one of the most clear ways I've ever seen this was actually last weekend. I went to the, me and a few others went to the Mind Body Spirit Festival. And almost every year we get people who come to the table and they say to us, I just had to come and sit down at your table. I, I felt uncomfortable everywhere else, but I had to sit down and hear what you had to say. A fragrance of life to some. And then there's some people who, as soon as we mention Jesus, they just want to get out of there. They can't wait to just leave and get as far away as possible. To some, a fragrance of death. And Paul understood this. And so I think it's challenging for us just to get ourselves in this mindset of today we're going to encounter people who do not know Christ. And they could be on their way to being perishing. Do we keep this at the forefront of our minds? Are we ready to preach the gospel, not only through our words, of course, but through our actions? So Paul here has given two points. One, that the servant of Christ suffers, but also the servant of Christ is used for the true proclamation of the gospel. And now Paul, for his final point, turns his attention straight to these super apostles. So we'll just read through the rest of the text, starting from verse 16. He says, Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And so Paul turns his attention to these false apostles and says, who is sufficient for these things? And then he basically lists out a number of reasons why he and his ministry are and why these false apostles are not worthy. You know, he starts out by saying that Unlike these false apostles, Paul doesn't peddle the word of God. And actually, this, the word peddle is talking about intentionally doing it, changing the word of God for your own benefit, like a dodgy transaction. And Paul says, we're not like that. We are sincere. We speak in Christ. And, and then Paul goes on. He says, we don't need any letter of recommendation. Now, now back in Paul's day, for those of you who are interested 
letters of recommendation were quite common for anyone coming to a particular town or city. They, they bring with them letters basically recommending themselves and how good they were and, and what they had to say was important. Uh, but these were actually kind of looked down upon in Paul's time because they didn't really prove anything about the message. But Paul actually says, you Corinthians are our letter. You want to see the, the worthiness of my message? Look at the Corinthians. Their changed lives are enough for me. And the reason Paul goes through his suffering, his hardships, and all that happens to him is for the sake of his fellow brothers and sisters, that he may see them grow. And so that really just to sum up this last little section. Uh, so the true servant of God suffers and yet is used for the proclamation of the gospel. And finally, the true servant of God has a focus on others and sacrifices himself for them. You see, these, these false teachers didn't really care about the Corinthians. They cared about their own gain. And I think the reality is we hear this all the time and we see this all the time around us. Those who are wanting to give a message of the gospel that is simply appealing to their ears. Maybe they want to remove this whole idea of suffering. Maybe they want to remove the idea of repentance, of sin. And it's really dangerous because it actually sounds really great. You know, I, w- I want to believe that this Christian life is nothing but walking in the park with sunshine and birds and everything great. But that's not the reality. That's not what we're called to. We need to be careful of that teaching. However, Paul says that we are to proclaim the truth with a heart that is seeking to serve others. I find it incredible here that Paul calls the Corinthian church a letter written on his own heart. And throughout this week, I've been asking myself, is this how I see my fellow brothers and, Christian, brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I care about them so much that, do I want them to grow so much that it actually hurts my heart when I see them not growing? Do we have this attitude for our brothers and sisters in Christ? As we look around at everyone sitting here today, do we see each other as family? Do we care enough for the person sitting on another table that we want them to see them grow? And we'll do as much as we can to contribute to their growth. Do we care like that? Are we really a family of God here? Because I can honestly say sometimes I'm not. Do we care enough as Paul did to encourage those around us? To encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we care enough as Paul did to sometimes warn our brothers and sisters who are walking down a dangerous path to tell them in love, look, I love you and you need to be careful of this kind of teaching. Well, maybe it's as simple as discipling someone, 
I think one of the greatest needs for people today, always, is that someone would invest their time into them. That someone would make the time. No matter how old you are or how young you are, you have the opportunity to disciple someone. To come alongside and say, I want to help you. I want to meet with you. I want to care for you. Such an important thing. Do we have the time for that? Do we have the time for our brothers and sisters? Even like Paul did, if it means sacrificing some good things. Paul sacrificed some good things for the sake of his brothers and sisters in Christ. Can we, can we do that? You know, as Christians we suffer, but we're used for the gospel. And we serve those in our family and those around us. But as I finish, I just want us to remember the reason why we do these things. It's not out of compulsion because we have to. Andy reminded me again this morning that it's all about the heart. You know, why does a true Christian suffer and yet his suffering is used so greatly? Because Christ suffered. Because Christ lived a life of suffering. His suffering was used tremendously. Do you really think our suffering can't? If God can save the whole of humanity through the suffering of Christ, why do we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom? Because Christ did. He lived a life of proclaiming to those who were in need, those who wanted to hear, those who didn't want to hear, the gospel of Christ. Why do we serve others because Christ came not to be served but to serve the God of the universe gave up his life to serve others and as we're just going to go straight into a time of communion now and I want us to fix our minds upon Christ To fix our minds on who he is and remember that this is why we do any of these things. And the love for Christ is what needs to compel us. And ultimately, we just need to come before him now in this time on our knees and say, God, help. Because sometimes I can't see how my suffering is being used. Sometimes I'm not proclaiming the gospel as I should. And sometimes I'm not serving like I should. I need you to change my heart. So I want to give us all the opportunity to do that now. Um, We're just going to spend a few minutes just in silence and when you're ready, come up, break the bread and take communion. But I really want you to spend some time reflecting on what has been said and most importantly, reflecting on Christ and letting him change our hearts and letting him work in our lives. So I'm going to pray and then we'll do that. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much for sending your son. For the fact that you went to such lengths to save us. That you displayed such love for us. But I thank you that you gave us such an example to follow but not only to follow, Lord, you, you gave us your Holy Spirit. Lord, we just want to ask for help, Lord, because we know 
probably some of us here today are in time, in periods of our lives that are really challenging. I just want to pray that you will remind us that you use suffering in such an amazing way and you comfort us in that, Lord. I pray that we'll be able to have the patience and, and just the perseverance in that, Lord, but also to be keeping our eyes for how we, even though we may struggle, can share with those around us. Pray you help us to, to serve one another, Lord, as a true family of God. And to always remember, Lord, that there is a world out there who do not know you and who desperately need you. So, Lord, help us. Help us now as we come to look at your cross once again. Lord, let us never tire of this. Let us remember how truly remarkable your grace is, your forgiveness is, and the fact that right now, You are a living God. You are living and interceding on our behalf. And Lord, we just want to praise you in this time. And so I just commit this to you in your name. Amen.